now we're back from our break, which was supposed to have taken about 30 minutes. We were going to come back and podcast for another two hours for you guys at the last one, but that two hours turned into about seven days. So we're just now getting to record part two. But Brent has something he wants to lead off with. He's found a couple of quotes. I guess the break was gratuitous because we now have some more material. Well, what? you were... Sorry, what were you going to say? Go ahead. I was. I listened to the podcast that we recorded a few times. And um, you had said you were worried that we didn't stick to the topic. And after listening to it a few times, I realized that actually... What we were doing was kind of like landing a plane on a runway where you have to circle around twice or three times to make sure you you got room to taxi down. Um, and we just about landed it. Uh, but right at the end, listeners may not have picked up on it, but we were both seriously running out of steam. I mean, we had been podcasting for an hour and 20 minutes or something, an hour and 20 minutes straight of talking. And that was after we had done a a pre-show planning session and we had basically been debating what we talked about in part one for an hour and a half before we started recording. And so it's a week later and it's actually much later than we did the last podcast as far as time of the day. We started about 8 p.m. last time and now we're starting at about 9.30. It's 10 after or 5 after 9. Okay, not too bad. All that to say, I'm fairly tired. Um, But... Chase told me that I'd perk up as soon as we started recording, and it seems like I I, have. I provided him with caffeine. You guys don't know Bren personally, most of you, I'm sure. But if he gets caffeine, his personality changes in about 30 minutes. So to keep us on track of the theme of evolution and how it works in society as far as biological evolution and all of the patterns and rules that it has in nature, assuming that human civilization is an extension of nature, how do those things apply to it? Are there any parallels? Are there, is there anything that stands out? Um, are the, is there any way you can predict the future of human civilization's evolution via natural evolution? I think those are kind of the things we're trying to get at. And so along those thoughts, I've, I went and collected a couple quotes that I remembered from a couple books that I've, well, one of them I've read and the other one I'm just starting to read. So the first quote is from Carl Sagan. Um, if you don't know Carl Sagan, he's technically an astrophysicist. Um, he was pretty prolific in the 80s. He made the co- the original Cosmos TV series, which uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson recreated about at this point probably 10 years ago i guess um so even that one's getting aged but carl sagan in this book uh shadows of forgotten ancestors the entire book is talking about um the evolutionary path to humans and it's interesting because i see this all the time in scientists and i really respect carl sagan i kind of grew up on him But scientists always seem to start with the assumption that humans are really not special. And granted, you could say that's true because of the smallness of us and 
And compared to the vastness of the universe and the vastness of Mother Nature and the perils of existing in this universe, humans are pretty small and insignificant. But, well, I'll just show you something that I thought was interesting that, that Carl said. So first, I'd, I'd like to start with... Uh, Yeah, the first part. And this is basically Carl Sagan and most scientists' view on evolution. Quote, You can see that the process tends to be adventitious, opportunistic, not foresighted, not with any future end in view. The evolving molecules do not plan ahead. They simply produce a steady stream of varieties, and sometimes one of the varieties turns out to be a slightly improved model. No one not the organism, not the environment, not the planet, not nature, is mulling the matter over. And I'd say, you'd probably agree, Chase, that's a pretty apt and poetic description of how scientists view basically the entire history of planet Earth. Exactly. It's just a blind, it's a blind algorithm. And you yeah, either... An algorithm. Either... either either something pans out or it doesn't pan out and the system really doesn't seem to care if we manufacture something and it doesn't work out it's not fit for its ecosystem we just kill it and it turns into raw elements again and we just use those raw elements to make something new that may not work but we can just keep doing that for all eternity but prior to this and I've picked up on this pretty quick prior to this Carl also said something Interesting, which I think hints at a thread of biological history and human civilization that scientists don't spend much time discussing. And this thread is this, quote, Physical reality has a permanence and stability, an obsessive regularity to it, while historical reality tends to be fickle and fluid less predictable, less rigidly determined by those laws of nature we know. Something like accident or chance seems to play a major role in issuing marching orders to the flow of historical events. Now, to quote another great mind that I love, Terence McKenna. Notice that Carl just said that it seems as if the rules of history and human civilization occur due to chance— Terence McKenna once said a very short but brilliant quote. He said, if your theory involves chance, then you're missing something in the theory. And I would That's very profound, but that is very, very, very true. I would say that the thing that, we're, that we attribute to chance in human civilization and the evolution and the march thereof through history is Another tertiary rule set based upon biological evolution, which we have not mapped out yet. Well, I'm glad you used the word map. That leans into something. Bren and I, when we first met, he made me more interested in STEM, physics, mathematics, and chemistry. I was very focused on history and sociology and literature and Bren, as he said, was all, he always loved Carl Sagan, and he was starting to read and watch Dr. Tyson. And he put books in my hand by Sagan and others that got me interested in hard sciences. My hero 
in my kind of mid to late teens as far as great figures in some field was Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson was just starting to break out, and this is before he had become kind of a self-help guru public figure. The only thing I knew was his his lectures and his biblical series. Well, really, his adventures in the... I mean, him going out all across the nation and doing all of these shows and speeches. And then his speeches, health crisis, and he was out of the country. That's all happened in the last three or four years. I mean, he's a pretty new on the cultural scene. So I caught on to him when he first started, and the thing that grabbed me was he talked about Carl Jung, and I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not that well-schooled in psychology. I mean, I haven't read a lot. I've read Peterson. And I think I'm going to start seriously reading Jung, like start at the beginning and go all the way through. But the great thing I picked up on from Dr. Peterson's lectures was he talked about Jung's idea of the circumambulation, that you start out not individuated. You start out not as a self-actualized person. You're kind of like he said he was. Dr. Jung said when he was about 11 years old, one day he just stepped out of a mist and said, I am. And that's what made him curious about the individual and what makes a conscious being versus an unconscious being. Anyways, I'm going to butcher this because I'm not Jordan Peterson or Carl Jung, but the circumambulation basically is as you become more and more of a, an individuated or self-actualized person, there's kind of an adventure you have to take where you start off as an extremely naive along multiple dimensions human being. But if you become aware of your naivety and you make an earnest attempt to undertake an adventure to cure yourself of being naive, you eventually become a well-rounded, emotionally stable, competent, respected human being. That's a very simple way to put that idea. But that goes back, if you listen to that last podcast, you'll hear us a few times, I think, use the term distillation. And if we didn't, then it was by accident that we forgot to say it. Exactly, because that is the word we generally use when we discuss these things. And there are really, there are really two big debates that I've been having in my head since I was very young that kind of brought me to the podcast, you know, made me someone who could, could and wanted to contribute to something like this. One debate is about the root of science and the scientific ethic and what is the best way to be a scientist and what's the role of science in society. And the other one is, what is the best way for an individual, as a human being and as a citizen, to think? And when I started to hear Peterson's lectures, and he talked about circumambulation, the individual starting from nothing, realizing ignorance, setting out to cure ignorance, and emerging from it in spite of struggle as a respectable, competent, 
self-aware individual. I saw a parallel there between circumambulation and the concept of good scientific work because the scientific method, if you break it down and you analyze it on fundamentals, we all heard observe, measure, repeat. Well, they tell you that, but no one ever, no professor I've ever had ever sat down and broke that apart and gave a full lecture on what does it mean to observe, measure, and hypothesize? Why is that the method, and why is it important to follow that method? So if you take a practical view, observe, measure, and repeat, there's not a lot of philosophizing in that. There's no question of how what you believe or what you even think. The system is you look at some system in the world, whether it's living systems, biology, it doesn't matter if you're asking what is the nerve system structure of a lobster, or if you're asking um, what's the deep philosophical undertones of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, or if you're asking uh, what's the proper equation to describe how an electron orbits an atomic nucleus, you just look. You don't think and you don't assume you just look and you watch until you think you figured out a way, the way that that system works that's making a hypothesis. And you measure, meaning measure or experiment. You go and you attempt to rebuild that system. You attempt to build a model of whatever system you were observing based on the principles you think guided. And you build that system. That's an experiment. And if the experiment doesn't pan out the way you want it to, in other words, if you say if A, then B, and you set up the system, and you if A and B doesn't happen, then it's understood that you didn't understand the system, and you need to go back and observe again and develop new thoughts. The evidence from the test is placed above your hypothesis. Exactly. The the reality of whether or not you can adequately rebuild that system, if you can build a model of that system and it works the way you say it should work, that is evidence that you understood the system. But if you attempt to build a model based on the way you think it works and the model that you build doesn't work, it's understood that you didn't understand the system. And so that lines up perfectly with circumambulation. And I realized that the way Carl Jung and Peterson were advising people to manage their affairs and think about and plan their lives was exactly in tandem with what the Enlightenment fathers said should be the proper mode of thought for anyone trying to understand the universe. And that led me to a term which I don't know if it's ever been used. I don't think Peterson's ever used it, but what I call the great circumambulation of society. Because man was born ignorant. The Bible says we ate forbidden fruit and suddenly we understood that we were naked. Mm. We were born into a naive state. And it makes sense that essentially if you take human civilization as a whole, not at the level of the individual, but the entire civilization... 
we would have to undergo a great circumambulation. We would have to do a lot of looking out at the at the world, looking at each other, and thinking that we could build civilization in certain ways. And we build those civilizations based on those principles. And the systems don't work. And if you look at it that way, history isn't made up of civilizations rising and falling and rising and falling and rising and falling. History is made up of a lot of experiments. And we observed and we measured and we repeated. And every time we seem to get a little bit better at building civilization. And that's the great circumambulation. We started out with nothing. We were just social animals and not very good at being social animals. But social evolution has made those structures get more and more complex. Every time a social structure falls apart, a new one grows out of it that's a little better than the one before. And when I started to go to school for biology, I was taking a biology undergrad class. And a professor gave a, a, an introductory lecture. I won't name the professor who said that in the early days of people starting to think that traditional church dogma on the origins of life might not be reliable and starting to develop theories on how life might have emerged without divine intervention, there was an early contender who I believe may have died when Darwin was first doing, I, I don't know the dates, his name was Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. You've, you are in the same curriculum I am. You've heard that name. Mm -hmm. And Lamarck's theory didn't hold water at all, but it was an early, very, very, again, great circumambulation. It was a very primitive view of biological evolution. And what he said was that he believed in evolution through the inheritance of acquired traits. And the most famous example of that is Lamarck would have said that giraffes were probably originally about the size of zebras or horses. But as generations of giraffes attempted to stretch their necks to pick fruit off of trees that were high up, their necks naturally got longer in their lifetime and that somehow they could pass those traits on to their offspring. And so over time, that just had the effect that the neck of a giraffe started getting long. That's Lamarckian evolution inheritance of acquired characteristics and of course biologically that doesn't hold up because Gregor Mendel came along and then there was Watson and Crick and the discovery of DNA and we understand that there's chromosomal inheritance and this and that but let's just stick with Lamarck the inheritance of acquired characteristics so we're going through this great circumambulation. We start at zero and we have nothing. We don't even know how to use fire or build a wheel yet. But we start to build more and more complex social structures. And we're going through a great circumambulation where we observe, we measure, we repeat. And it would make sense that if you looked at that from 30,000 feet up, there were always, and there are now, certain walls we have to hit and certain great mistakes we have to make in order to learn the lessons. It's a scientific process of omission or distillation where we whack into walls by building things that don't work. And in failure, we figure out, oh, 
That's not a way to build a country. That's not a way to organize a religious faith. That's not a way for the different genders to relate to one another. That's not a way to have a marriage. That's not a way to raise children. And there's a great circumambulation in the same way that each individual has a circumambulation because you have a certain set of mistakes you have to make, a certain set of failed experiments you have to go through. You know, you have to you have to get out of college, I'm making this up, with a degree in accounting because your dad was an accountant and there's good money in it, and go to work from an accounting firm when you're 24, and by the time you're 30, you're making decent money, but you're getting nowhere because you're miserable, and then you have to quit that job and you have a dark period where you have a hard time keeping a job and you don't know where you want to go, but then you remember that you always wanted to be a writer, and so over a lot of sleepless nights on weekends when you don't have work at your job that you hate, you put together that novel you always wanted to write, and you, on a wing and a prayer, you send it to an editor, and that editor doesn't want it, so you send it to another one, and that editor, these are experiments that keep failing. You wanted to be in accounting. You tried it. You couldn't make it. Didn't make you happy. That didn't work. You did an experiment. You wrote a novel and sent it to uh, an agent, or you sent it, your agent sent it to a publisher, and you keep getting rejected. And every time you try to achieve publishing a novel a certain way, it doesn't work. But finally, you publish it independently, and it takes off, and that experiment succeeds. And then you start to make a full-time income, and you start to write in other genres, or you start to write new books that you had only thought up recently. That's your individual circumambulation. And society has that circumambulation where we keep going through and making mistakes on a very, very grand scale, on the scale of the whole planet. But I mentioned Lamarck for a reason, and that is that I believe that social evolution is Lamarckian and not Darwinian, at least not essentially, because inheritance of acquired characteristics. You can make mistakes in your lifetime that set you back and that cause you trouble, and you can use what you've learned to teach your children that they don't make the same mistakes. And so there is inheritance of acquired social characteristics. It doesn't work in biology because you can't inherit an acquired characteristic. If a man loses his right pinky finger and then he gets his wife pregnant when the baby is born, it's not going to be missing its pinky finger because its father lost one. But if you understand that being irresponsible with money is a bad thing, and at one point in your life you're bankrupt and you have to dig yourself out, and you're emphatic with your children about being financially literate, and they never go bankrupt, then there is inheritance of acquired characteristics. And so basically what I'm saying is that social evolution, you'll hear like people who are critics of capitalism will say that capitalism is social Darwinism. And I don't think that it is. I think that you do have the ability to change your economic behaviors. And I'm only using economics as an example because it's something I've thought of, thought about for a very long time. This applies in every aspect of life. You can change the way you think, even if you can't change your genes, so that it's not, there's never any such thing as there, if you're genetically disposed to get very aggressive pancreatic cancer, 
other than preventative treatments and screenings, there's nothing you can do. If you're going to have pancreatic cancer genetically, you're stuck. And I don't mean to be cruel or fatalist by saying that. It's just, you know, it's the reason that some women will go and have preventative double mastectomies when they find out that they've got the gene that virtually guarantees they'll get uh, breast cancer. There's just biology genes there are things written into them that aren't fair but that can't be changed at least not at the moment but these things aren't true of social behaviors because you can change your attitude and you can change your view and you can change the way you act and react to people and to things and you can change your work ethic If anyone's wondering, I purposefully let Chase finish his entire thought because I needed a moment. See, you've just burst my bubble because I was sitting here looking at you and you were kind of dead-eyed and just staring right through me and I really thought I had blown your mind with all that stuff. But I'm beginning to think you were just cleaning your weapon and reloading to come back for (laughs) round two. Something like that. Um... I think you've hit on to something. I can't address every pers- every statement you've just made, but I think you hit on to a beat there of whether you realize it or not, social evolution does in fact work in the way you're describing and that it can actively mutate throughout the life of of the organisms which are embedded in it. And you as a human have sense abilities, sense abilities, not sensibilities. I mean, two, two words, sense abilities. You have the ability to consciously mutate yourself because genetic, I mean, the first thing you learn in bio 101 is all genetic variation is ultimately the result of mutations. But mutations are blind and you have no way of controlling if you if you introduce a mutagen to an organism and you attempt to force its dna to mutate you have no way of controlling what happens they can be positive negative or neutral you may create a mutation that does absolutely nothing you may create a mutation that produces harmful proteins and kills the organism uh or you may accidentally do something that improves the organism's metabolism and it benefits them in some way. Social evolution, you don't have that problem because you're in control of your own mutations. You can decide what you accept and what you don't accept based on what you perceive with your senses to be true or not true. Well, you can um you could view the the cultural For lack of a better word, the cultural operating system for which you are programmed with as you are raised within a culture, um, that culture will give you starting material, right? And you also receive starting material from your family and from your friends and from those you associate with. So the materials you're starting with are kind of like your genetic code. And so you can alter them, but some 
some, much like genes, usually there's not a single gene which turns something on or off. Usually there's a cascade. There's an entire module of genetic information which um, contributes to a function. And I think it works very similarly with thoughts and ideas. And while there is a great benefit in having this programmable kind of free-form, editable genetic code, it does come at the cost of the genetic code constrains the actions you can take in the world. And so if you are pre-programmed, if the genetic code you're given from the culture is one of 1950s Catholicism, you know, you have to go get a college education you have to become a banker, just like you're saying. It's like you're you're kind of at a deficit at some in some situations because depending on what your goal is, your genetic information can hold you back. Your cultural programming can hold you back. And so the genetic information of thoughts and ideas is also limited, this is a thought I had while you were talking about that, is also limited by the form it takes. And so, for instance, in a pre-literate culture where thoughts and ideas are only spoken and, and held in your brain, um, the progression is a lot slower and it's rudimentary. It's uh, And extremely local. It's a lot like the beginnings of biological evolution, just us groping, just, I mean, the first thing that can grab photosynthesis, it's, it's, you know, it's a springboard. And the same thing happens on the mental level with thoughts and ideas. I mean, the first person who can come up with a, a, a good static government system that can hold power and keep it and keep some kind of conservancy and some kind of order to civilization well, then you get walls and you get roads and you get plumbing. Um, but we find ourselves kind of at the end of that. All of that's been done. All of all of the genetic coding that leads to great civilizations, we've kind of got that down. I mean, there's been hundreds of world-spanning civilizations. And so now we're working with kind of the next tier of even that information, which is gone from consciousness and thoughts and words into written language, which has gone further into media and electronic information. And I think really the point of what I'm getting to is just that at every level, you, you get a new rule set. And so like you're saying how Lamarckian evolution works for thoughts, but doesn't work for biology, as we climb up this ladder of complexity, it seems as if the evolution becomes expedited faster and faster. Which is a direct link to what we've said about technology. We were to, we went on for a long time in the first part of this episode about, I think we said, like walking towards a giant concave mirror where all you can see is yourself everywhere you look. In reference to um, social media and the internet. Which yeah. is, it's interesting you bring and up. really media in general. I mean, even television was a rudimentary. You brought form up of that. Um, preliterate societies, mm. and that's an important point 
because if you think back to you meant and Terence McKenna, you talked about shamanistic tradition. Mm-hmm. Who's the shaman? He's the dude who has all the collected wisdom of the tribe in his head. And as you pass down through generation generations of shamans, that wisdom builds and builds because shaman number two has what he was taught by shaman number one and whatever he figured out in his own lifetime. Well, then and writing I'd say comes along. It's, it's a bit more than just understanding the civilization and the history and the, the oral history and all of that. It's also an understanding of the rule set of that culture. Be, I'll go on a small tangent and then let you finish. But a shaman generally sits on the outside of the culture. And looks in. And looks in. So they are given privilege to deconstruct society. And not interrupted, which is kind of like, we'll let you go off into the desert and sit on top of the rock and watch us and because you think say, in your head that we're stupid. Because and, you say profound things and make connections that we can't see from the inside. And then when written language develops, that changes because the collected wisdom is written down. There's a reason why there's a link between education, the transfer of information across generations, and religion. Because it was the shaman who couldn't write anything down because there was no language, but had the wisdom and taught the young. And then you move forward. And who is it in medieval Europe that teaches the children? The church. Mm -hmm. The church has all the books. And the church officers, the church, the, the, the soldiers of the church, the priests, the nuns, are the only ones who know how to read. Mm-hmm. So it ain't great on a world scale because 99% of the, of the human race can't write the language they speak. Well, in that world, how could you ever get the 99% of people to read? They're too and the busy. ones in power don't want them to read because that would involve an upsetting of society. See, that was another part of the circumambulation. We had to get to the point where we understood that most people in your society being badly educated was a bad thing. That had to come through before you could move forward. If you would be willing to open your other ear to a secondary quotation source I have collected, um, I think it ties in pretty nicely to what we just said. Um, this, This comes from McLuhan. And I will not... Marshall McLuhan? Marshall McLuhan, the media maniac of the 50s. Um, Also a Canadian. Jordan Peterson, it turns out, isn't an isolated case. I'm not going to pretend like I know Marshall McLuhan. Um, I'm just starting to read his book. But within the first chapter, I already have like five things scribbled down. So I think we're on to something here. That's a borrowed book. I hope you didn't scribble them down in the book. There's already scribbles. (laughs) They won't be able to tell. It all looks like graphite in the end. Um, so this is coming from Marshall McLuhan's, I guess his, probably his magnum opus, as far as I could tell, uh, understanding media, the extensions of man. Uh, and one idea, I can't explain it all because I don't, I'm not going to pretend to understand it all, but I'll take a couple direct quotations that I did understand Um, Marshall McLuhan was talking about how media in all its forms and how technology changes the way that society functions. And in the shortest way possible, he presented this as a message of 
the medium, the media, the medium through which media flows through, the medium itself is the message, meaning that you can have information embedded in a medium, but the medium itself is what is altering the perception of that data. And so, for instance, to explain what the medium is the message means, before literate society, the thought was the basis of civilization. The thought is then embedded in writing. So the thought is the media. Writing is the medium. Then, let's just jump to the telephone. Or, for better linearity, the telegraph, which is the example McLuhan used. In the telegraph, writing is the media and the telegraph is the medium. In television, he argued that the medium was television, but the media presented in television was the movie. And so the television allows for the movie to be dissected into many smaller variations. It changes the way that you see media. And then the telephone changes the way that you see conversation. The internet changes the way you see information. Um, and he had a, a quote. I, I can't remember exactly who he was quoting, but essentially this is the idea. And it refers to the, what we were talking about with the shaman. Quote, and it is only on those terms, standing aside from any structure or medium, that its principles and lines of force can be discerned. And so McLuhan's whole thing was that if you're in a medium, if you're currently listening to us talking, the act of listening through headphones, through a cell phone, through the internet connection changes the relationship of you to our words. It'd be different if we were here together, and it'd be different if you were thinking the words that we're saying. The only way to actually see what the medium is doing is to remove yourself from it and to see it in either a historical point of view, such as when you go back and read the Greek and Roman writings, or you go back further and read the theological writings, you're seeing their culture from an alienated point of view. But it'd be different if you were standing there arguing it with someone in the streets of Athens or Rome. Your perception of it would be completely different. You can't actually, you can see now from a distance how alien it is to you, but to them it would, it was a completely different experience. Which seems so simple, but no one thinks that way. Like you say that the political news media corrupts the actual truths of government. And people look at you like you're crazy. And that, well, what are we supposed to do? Just not pay attention to the news? They're our source. They're, they're interpreting this for us. We have no other access. And it, I think it's literally true that if you didn't pay attention to news media, you would be better equipped and comp more competent as a citizen to make good political votes. Well, let me – that there's another section to this quote. To continue on after saying standing aside from the structure is the only way that you can interpret it, further on, McLuhan says – for any medium has the power of imposing its own assumption on the unwary. Prediction and control consist in avoiding this subliminal state of a narcissist's trance. But the greatest aid to this end is simply in knowing that the spell can occur immediately upon contact, 
as in the first bars of a melody. An interesting thing about, he goes on to talk about audio and music. And an interesting thing about music is that it completely envelops you immediately. It takes control of your emotions from you. And you are experiencing the emotions of the song and your emotions then take a backseat. And he goes on to use that as an example of how mediums can take your control. The television is a streamlined consciousness. There's no break. There's, besides the advertising break, which is just a continuation of the consciousness, it's being directly pumped into you and you don't have control over it aside from changing the channel. The internet introduces... The pause and play, the rewind, the fast forward. Um, Music is also unique in that it's the one thing that really, you can't corrupt it with the medium because it speaks to every person. You, you know, you have your own experience of listening to a song. So it's really, it's really the one piece, the one kind of information that defies being changed by its medium. Like, you can't, it doesn't matter if you hear it played during a movie on TV. It doesn't matter if you download it on in iTunes and listen to it. It doesn't matter if it's part of a YouTube compilation or something. Mm-hmm. You really when the first time you hear Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, it's a mind-altering experience. That that's really I'm glad you brought that up because And the music tends to transcend time and culture. Which is why people who are 15 years old now can walk around wearing Pink Floyd shirts and they listen to Pink Floyd's music and Pink Floyd hasn't put out an album since, what, late 80s, early 90s? Mm -hmm. So another add-on, this was actually about 10 or 15 pages past the last quote, but it still hits on back onto that same idea regarding us talking about the shaman and people who stand outside of culture. McLuhan says, today, when we want to get our bearings in our own culture and have need to stand aside from the bias and pressure exerted by any technical form of human expression, we have only to visit a society where that particular form has not been felt. Maybe in the 50s that was possible, but I doubt that's possible today for us. Or a historical period in which it was unknown. And it's interesting because looking at this writing from McLuhan in the 1950s, perhaps even earlier, I am looking back into a culture in which my current mediums were unknown. And so I can read the mind of someone who's dead and who was alive in a period I wasn't and understand how their mediums altered them compared to me. And I think that by living in the age of the internet, we are distinct from all cultures, period. And especially me and you being embedded in the culture as the internet came to power, there are parents and our grandparents who use the internet, but they weren't molded by it. You talked about last podcast about how when you were in your adolescence, you were using Wikipedia and it was causing you to ask bigger and bigger questions. And it allows you to dive deeper because all you have to do is click on that little blue link and it takes you to the next topic and the next topic and the next topic and everything's interconnected in that way. Even in an encyclopedia, it's a rudimentary form of that. Wikipedia is the more exponential version of an encyclopedia. So the internet intensifies, concentrates, and kind of distills everything down into 
a faster, more efficient version of itself. So it can actually take old technologies and revamp them. I think that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) To quote Forrest Gump. You didn't do it right. It's that's all I got to say about that right there. And I probably didn't do it right either. I think the internet, I think the internet, it's fatal. Everyone thinks, or I think if you walk down the street and you actively polled people with one question, do you think the internet does harm? I don't think you would get anyone who would say it doesn't. They might not be able to tell you what kind of harm they think it does, but they would tell you it does some kind of harm. And I think the harm it does is an unintentional harm. I think that Mr. Broom, who we interviewed for our first episode, he was a teacher of ours. And one of the things he said when I was very young in class, he was lecturing on the very early history of the United States. And he said, Y'all stop and think. This is a time when people were casting votes for president of the United States, and none of them had ever seen his picture, never seen him in person, never heard his voice. Everything they knew about him, if they even voted, everything they were voting based off of came through newspapers. And you think, well, that's a bad thing. And it, in a way, it is. But also, going off of this whole theory I've been putting forward about social evolution, the best way to achieve and move the great, the great circumambulation forward is for you as an individual to pursue some path where you find an answer and run an experiment that can then be taught to other people in society. You know, if you attempt an experimental therapy to cure cancer and it works, no one else has to discover that because you've discovered it. But on a great scale, what just happened is that humanity figured out how to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. So really the best way to move humanity forward is to think and act locally. Pursue your own path and answer the questions you feel led to answer and that you can equip yourself to answer. Well, pre-internet, you were kind of naturally forced into that because you couldn't talk to people in China or Japan or Washington, D.C. or Mexico or Nigeria. So you were forced to act locally. But the Internet brings with it the delusion, and it's not entirely a delusion, but the the delusion that you can or should attempt to act globally. And I think that's what's brought about the serious, vigorous ascent of idealism and ideologues. Because the internet creates the delusion, and you see this with you know social media celebrities and, and film stars and great famous singers, rappers. 
this ability to generate a facade of what you want the world to see, regardless of what's underneath it. Mm-hmm. Your brand. Your brand. And if that, I think that the ability to do that along a lot of different dimensions creates the delusion that you can do that in your own life. You know, I think a lot of young people are suffering from depression and mental illness, and that has the effect of creating a very dysfunctional society. And I think that where that comes from is... A society in which more than 10% of your population is on any kind of psychiatric drug. Prescribed or unprescribed. I mean, 10% of people get wiped out by alcoholism. And that's certainly not medicine, but that's... More often than not, that's an attempt to push down internal struggles. Mm -hmm. You know, you drink out of depression or you drink out to calm anxiety or you drink to make you better with women. You think you'll approach women more if you're a little sauced. But I think that the Internet kind of put it into especially millennials' heads that the facade was the achievement you know if you could if you could look rich well then that must give you the same achievement as building a business or being a good investor and building a fortune if you could look rich then the feeling of achievement that would come along with actually being wealthy would come along with the ability to generate the facade and i think a whole generation has figured out how to be very good at using the internet to generate a facade and never, ever gave any attention to becoming competent at actually achieving what's under the appearance. You know, it's it's great if you can look good on camera, and you might think that that's what it is to be a great actor, is to look good on camera, but it's not. There's a whole skill set of forensics. You have to be good at reading between the lines and figuring out what emotions and what unspoken thoughts a character is supposed to be having. If you're going to play that character, you have to develop mannerisms, you know, particular tics that that person may have to make it believable. You have to be very good at, at getting into character and not letting, you know, if you're a stage actor, anything may happen. A, a, Footlight may catch on fire in the middle of Macbeth, you know, and you're going to have to be so into character that that doesn't phase you. There's a whole skill set to being a great actor. It's not just looking good, being able to make yourself look good in front of a camera. So now there's these legions of kids. I say kids, millennials, our age. There are millennials who are older than us who know the facade and don't know the fundamental principles that lead to you that led to people in past generations having that look you know it looks like in history books it looks like the kennedy family was very successful in politics it looks that way and it looks like they were very charismatic and very well connected it looks that way and it looks that way in history books because it was that way the kennedy family the generation of brothers, uh, President Kennedy, his brother Robert Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, uh, 
they came from a very old Irish Catholic New York family that was that had an extensive political network, and they were taught from a young age how to be good debaters and how to carry themselves in public. It looked like they were a very dynamic, charismatic political family because they were. And now it seems that you look at people in our own time who are famous almost strictly because of the Internet, and they're able to look like X or Y, but there's no there there. And you couldn't have that without the Internet. Um, we're diving into what I think I could tie into as a mechanism of evolution in society. But this is an example of... So you just mentioned history books and social media. And you were saying that the Kennedy family looked successful because they were successful. There it was an assumption baked in that I think is now eroding, which is that the written word has validity to it because it is written. And social media takes advantage of that presumption because if on your profile and all of your postings and all of your posts, every curated picture and word that comes from you or your avatar, so to speak, is presumed to have validity in the same way that a historical notion has validity or that an academic paper has validity. Systems that are that have faults but are peer-reviewed. And you take that presumption and you say, I am XYZ through media, and people believe it because when they see it, they have the presumption that it has validity because it's written. And I think that one thing that the internet has done is devalue the written word almost basically just through sheer number of words and images and ideas, it has devalued things to where posting a picture of you with um, a, a $100,000 sports car in front of a mansion that cost half a million or multiple millions and you have jewelry on and really nice clothes, that means nothing. Because if you have 10 grand, you can go pay somebody to bring the car there in front of the mansion and take a picture. People do that. People rent houses for social media events. It Everything can be fabricated. And if you just point the camera in the right angle, you it looks as if it's real. And so enough of that has happened that it's become so devalued that no one's going to notice if you look rich on you the internet. You see that in the podcast world. I mean, you're kind of tempted to think that if you invite a guest on your podcast, you're instinct as a fan of that podcast is, oh, this person, the, the content creators who brought that person onto their podcast must have really felt that that person had some value to add to the show. But it's not because there are influencers, quote, who will pay podcast hosts wads of cash to, quote, invite them on as guests 
well, then you get currency because you get exposed to audiences that you might not have been exposed to otherwise. You know, there's kind of a an internal editing mechanism, which is sometimes a good thing and sometimes a bad thing. Your own tastes, you know, there's podcasts you listen to and there's podcasts you don't. You might listen to The Last Conversation and not listen to a podcast where what they do is every week they publish a new podcast and it's a cast of actors, voice actors, reading a script for a supernatural horror story. Mm-hmm. You know, and you choose to listen to The Last Conversation and not that, or you choose to listen to the horror podcast and not The Last Conversation. But you talked about manufacturing things and it's cheapened the value of the written word. It's cheapened the value of individual taste and association in people and ideas. Because if you can pay to be on someone's podcast and in a, in a sense, in a sense, force their listeners to consider you, even if they didn't want to consider you, it's cheapened the value of association because it used to be that you could pick people out of society and you still can. And in a sense, you use them as lightning rods. You respect your dad. Your dad is a great person. You've always looked up to him. He's a pillar in your community. And you know that everyone loves him and respects him and you want to be like your dad. Who do you associate with? You associate with the people who associate with your father. You used to be able to use people as lightning rods. And from time to time, you would have someone in a position of major public fame that the country could use as a lightning rod. National heroes. John Wayne, uh, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, whoever. And it's interesting that also in in respect to cultural lightning rods and icons, the mass amount of information that you can find about them via the internet devalues them themselves. Because you will find very distasteful things about people who were heroes. Extremely well, well, distasteful. The, I think instead of devalue, we should say it 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 makes it harder to, to be a hero than it used to be. Because it used to be that as long as you look good on... It, it used to be that there were certain things that were... I'm trying not to contradict myself here because it's easy. It's hard to say this. It used to be in the same way that President Franklin Roosevelt was paralyzed from the waist down. The media, of its own accord, went out of its way to not let America know that he had had polio and he was paralyzed from the waist down as a show of consideration and respect to him. It was considered inappropriate that the public should see him that way because that was considered humiliating and emasculating. And... It was just that if you had something to add to society, this other thing that you have over here that's bad can be overlooked if you have some genuine contribution to make. As long as what you do, and I'm not saying that the president being disabled was some kind of a threat or compromise to society, it wasn't. 
but we can list any number of examples of people who, as you said, were great heroes and had horrible personality flaws. President John F. Kennedy, charismatic man, loved by America, rampant womanizer, the commander-in-chief leader of the free world who had extramarital affairs in the White House while his wife was on a different floor asleep in the White House, and the Secret Service were helping him smuggle his mistresses in and out. You can go down the list. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm not sure that's a good thing. You know, there, that's that's the curse of human existence in some way. There are no good things and there are no bad things. Things happen, and to some people it's beautiful, and to some people it's hideous. It, it can never work out for everyone. It's, I mean, I, I see a sense of poetic justice when some journalist or celebrity who is virtue sig- signaling and taking the false moral high ground on a subject, when they get caught violating their own statements about morality and about how a person should behave. Well, I mean, that happens all throughout the board from judges to police officers to you name exactly. it. Exactly. And I I feel happy about it. There's poetic justice in it. And there are things that the American people need to know. And then I think, well, yeah, but wasn't it a little bit easier to have peace of mind as an American when the media could know that the president was sleeping around in the White House, but they wouldn't tell anyone just to avoid embarrassing the country wasn't it better when a president could have a physical ailment but as long as he was an honorable good leader and could do the work of the office the media would censor itself and say we don't have to tell everyone that he's had polio and he can't walk anymore that would that would just that would burden him and and we don't need to tell that so at the same time as the internet has made it hard to be a hypocrite which as far as i'm concerned is a great forward leap for humanity at the same time it's also badly eroded this has become a political issue that the internet has badly eroded privacy and discretion mm-hmm. everything's up for grabs everything can be seen mm-hmm. so which it i think that explains a lot of cultural confusion and creates I might have to make up a word here or something. It creates a landscape of what used to appear to be a solid landscape has now been shown to be translucent. Very, very translucent and very, very, very indefinite. And so coping with that causes you to grab onto essentially the nearest life vest you can find. Uh, because ideologies I, I'm not sure people have realized this, and I know we keep going on and on about the internet, but it's it's really as far as a Western young adult, the internet's where it's at. There's there's no there's no getting around that. There's nothing happening outside there, of the internet. There's no there's no driver of social evolution that ever came on as quick and did as much evolutionary change as quick as the internet did. And so the reason for me, the reason to keep harping on about the internet is because you have to understand where your culture is going. You have to catch the direction, the wind, the, the vibe, so to speak. 
of where you're heading so that you can interpret if you're going to crash and burn or if there's some opportunity here. And considering the internet right now is the medium through which the culture is exploring the world, I think that people have not considered that what we have unleashed upon the face of the earth is an electromagnetic storm that no one could ever have imagined. The equivalent of the nuclear bomb, what it did to warfare, is what the internet has done to ideologies. You have kicked the floor out from underneath the entire cultural assumption that has been held for thousands of years continuously and rigidly, which is this idea that what you see, well, it was true. Now it's not. Now whatever you see can be fabricated. You can't assume that what you're perceiving and what you're holding is in any way valid or true. And we talked about this before on a previous podcast. It's interesting that as we go, we can say that more and more. Um, eventually, we'll just have a Wikipedia of our own thoughts, I guess. I guess that's what we're doing here. We've talked about... Oh, I lost my train of thought. What was the last 20 words I said? It used to be that you could assume that what you were seeing was true and you couldn't make that assumption anymore because anything that you see, you have to assume could have been fabricated. No, it's gone. What I'm trying to get at is that the tumultuous nature we see in our society is due to a grappling of trying to find an ideology that will stand or one that's at least good enough that will make you feel comfortable. Because what has happened is a sort of the elevators failed. The illusions no longer hold and the, the chaos that's cascaded from this event has caused some bizarre ideas to occur. And some very profound leaps of logic, some the largest bundles of straws you've ever seemed to grasp at before. And it's interesting that perhaps maybe before the internet, and again, I can't know because it may have been an illusion, but the culture seemed to be a bit more sane. It at least appeared that way, which gives you the comfort of assuming that other people around you are sane. And it, well, that goes back to what I said about pre-internet, pre-mass media even, you could say, pre-cable news, cable TV, 24-hour news cycle. You were forced to act locally because you really didn't have any act. If you were running a dry goods store in rural south-central Mississippi, you really didn't have a lot of control over what was happening in Washington. You weren't... There wasn't C-SPAN where you could watch what members of Congress were debating every minute of every day. So the best thing you could do was focus on your own life and your own business and your own community and take care of your and, – and devote your brain to being better at the things you were doing in your own world. So I, I don't think that was an illusion. I think that it's true that society was a little more sane because there was no alternate way to go. And I think as the media has grown, there's been this attempt to escape through the screen into that world on the other side. And we're just now starting to really, really get it into our heads. And it, it's traumatic. 
at many levels. We're just starting to get it through our heads that that other world on the other side of the screen is a world where basically a kind of sick magic does happen where you can make things appear that shouldn't be or that couldn't be in reality. See, there was this movement in the early internet. And again, I think this goes back to a trusting in science as well. That the internet would set us free. That it would elucidate all of the inner workings. It would allow you to access information instantly. Everyone would be on the same page. We could finally move forward and start a new historical period in which the entire world could be connected and unanimous. I don't think you will find a single ideologue in the culture right now that is propagating that idea. I don't think a single person who has the power to say it is up there preaching that we are all connected now for the betterment of humanity. In fact, I'd say you'd find most people are saying we need to get rid of this section because they're annoying the hell out of us. We can't stand them. Just get them out of here. Made the contentious relationships even worse. And um, about what time is it? 10.30? 10.15. I guess we'll have to wrap this up soon. I have another quote that I pulled from, um, from McLuhan's book, and it's actually – please don't hold this as a character judgment because I do not know the popes personally. <laughs> but – and this is an awesome name. We haven't gotten our invitation to the Vatican yet. Yeah, we don't know the Pope personally. Pope Pius Twelfth, on February 17th, 1950, said these words. The future of modern society and the stability of its inner life depend in large part on the maintenance of an equilibrium between the strength of the techniques of communication and the capacity of the individual's own reaction. And I thought that was extremely profound. The strength of the culture relies on the integrity of their communication and an individual's own capacity for communication. What we're seeing is what happens when the entire culture like a MRI machine doing a brain scan of some sort, when every node becomes connected and they all fire at the same time, no one is restraining their communications. No one is practicing how to communicate. No one is sitting down with the intention every morning of becoming a better communicator. And so the integrity of the entire culture is falling apart. It's a novel landscape of which we're seeing powers act on it that we can't fully comprehend yet. Evolutionary selection is happening in ways that we can't understand because we're embedded in the system which is selecting on us. In a thousand years from now, all of this will be very clear, but for now, for me and you, it's just a mystery. We have no idea what the hell is going on. I think that as much as we talk about it, we're just scratching the surface, that there are movements and ebbs and flows of information and power and selections that we can't even comprehend. And the only way to be able to comprehend those things is as the reason why I brought these quotes. 
Carl Sagan said that the culture, the evolution of history, seems to be by chance and mystery. McLuhan says that you cannot observe your own culture because you are watching a medium that you are embedded in, and you can't understand your culture unless you are far removed from it or in the future. I think there's threads to tie together here, but I won't be able to tie them together until I re-listen to this podcast (laughs) because right now I'm in it and I can't see connections from what I've said at the beginning to now. But much like when I listened to the last podcast, I was able to draw connections and find meaning in it. And I think that's that's the predicament we're in. If you can allow me to to be so philosophical in <laughs> all the things I've just said. Um, and it's a strange predicament because you think that with all the information we have that you could figure something out. But even, with, I mean, you, every, the greatest minds in the world are working on it right now in every aspect. And you see that actually these greatest minds of the world that are trying to solve the world's problems, much like the expansion of the universe, are getting further and further apart as the culture kind of balloons, eventually there's going to be some kind of catastrophic fracturing. And we may be in the midst of it right now. So if you can come back from my entirely pessimistic view that I just painted after Pope Pius Twelfth said that we're screwed if we can't get our act together, I'd be impressed if you could tie that together and make it a positive. Well... <laughs> I read and and watch a lot of content about finance. I can attest to that. He does. And I heard a a great investor, Howard Marks, he was interviewed by Michael Milken for the Milken Institute. And Marks was talking about he this is very technical, but he runs a, a what's called a vulture fund informally. It's it's formally a distressed assets investing fund. And basically the way that works is if a company has bonds outstanding and it looks like that company is going to have trouble, sometimes the owners of those bonds will panic out of them and sell them indiscriminately. And they may only be selling for 25% of their face value. And if the yield on the bond is 5% of face value and you buy it at a quarter of a, a, a at a quarter of its face value, your real interest rate is many times I I can't do the numbers right now. It's too late at night for me to crunch those numbers in my head. But the point is he was talking about kind of he didn't describe it this way, but but one of Oak Tree's biggest scores was the 2008 financial crisis because they were able to buy up distressed assets. They were able to buy up outstanding debts of banks that everyone thought were going to implode. They were, they were able to buy mortgage-backed securities, and they were buying these things for cents on the dollar. And he said... 
he's a known to be a very level-headed, philosophical, long-term investor. He's written a, a couple of books. Uh, one, Mastering the Market Cycle, I think is the one he was he had just released when this interview with Michael Milken was done. And Howard Marks said, and I'm paraphrasing, that it was 2008, they saw that there were a bunch of distressed, way undervalued securities. And he said, well, people are talking about the end of the financial world because it wasn't clear if the banks were going to the government was going to agree to bail them out, or even if they attempted, if they could stop a total financial collapse. And he said, well, people are talking about the end of the financial world. He basically said, again, paraphrasing, our attitude at Oak Tree Capital was, if we plow billions of dollars worth of our investors' money into distressed assets and the markets don't recover and these bonds actually do go into default and we lose all of our money. If it's the end of the financial world, we'll be one of the tens of thousands of money management organizations that have to call up our clients and tell them, well, the world ended and we're sad to report it applies to you too. You lost all your money. I'm not using any of his words. I'm paraphrasing. I want to be emphatic because people are going to go watch this interview, and I, I know there will be someone in a comment section somewhere who will say, I have a link here where I edited that video, and Howard Marks didn't say those words. But he said that Oak Tree also reasoned, it doesn't make much of a difference if we're wrong on this and the world does end and we lose all of our money. If it's the end of the financial world, it was all over anyways. But if we don't invest and the world doesn't end, we're going to come out looking like suckers because we're going to have missed the opportunity of the century as far as buying undervalued bonds. And you said, could I draw all of that pessimistic, critical view of society and and where we're at right now into a positive and i'm going to take a howard marks view in a way yeah it kind of looks like the world is coming unglued at the seams and it doesn't really look like there's any way to stop it and it doesn't really look like there are any noble trustworthy actors on the scene to to swoop in and take control and fix it. But it's looked that way at least 10 times before. Like if you think about the Cold War, there was every reason to think that they were just waiting for Fidel Castro to ash his cigarette, to, to ash his cigar the wrong way, or for Kennedy to cough too hard or for a stout wind to blow through Moscow <laughs> for nuclear war to break out. I'm sure it did feel that way. I'm very sure it did. Like everybody was just waiting on the, it was a certain thing. The nuke is going to drop. People were spending, I'm sure the modern equivalent of billions of dollars a year, families trying to secure fallout shelters, or it seems that way. It, it may not have been that much of a movement, but fallout shelters certainly were a thing. Well, they were a thing. So I don't think it's responsible or productive for any individual 
to treat this as a moment to say, well, I may as well not use my own senses because it's all coming apart anyway. I may as well just be nihilistic and hedonistic. It it may end up being the end of humanity. I, I can't. That's kind of like, does God exist? I have that. That's not even a. a there's no way to answer that question. I I mean that technically. There is no way to answer that question. You can't say yes, and you can't say no. This may be the end of the West, or it may be the end of humanity. I can't say scientifically it won't be. But like Oak Tree Capital in 2008, if we don't perfect our own thoughts, and if we don't have a spirit of compassion and cooperation, and if we don't work to better ourselves, and it's not the end of humanity... Future generations will look back on us as fools who made a, ne- a bad but negotiable situation much worse and caused it to take much longer for it to correct itself than it would have otherwise. So my positive spin on it is, yeah, it kind of looks like things are bad and getting worse and nothing can stop it. But it's looked that way a lot of times before, and there were golden eras since then. The only thing that's changed is the medium. Exactly. The only thing that's changed is the medium. And maybe you could say the the specific set of customs that we act out around our beliefs. So I guess the closing positive message is keep thinking and keep debating and keep improving yourself and your own community. And if enough people do that, what that will look look like from 30,000 feet is a disorganized culture that's lost its way correcting itself. So it's not all over unless we all get it into our heads that it's over. I wrote one time in a document I found on my laptop about two days ago. I wrote something like my wishes for what the podcast would be. And believe it or not, I'm not as pessimistic as I might sound. I just have hard questions for reality, and it doesn't seem to give me straight answers. We're on a seesaw of that, people. You're two hosts for the last conversation. There have been years where Bren would say, Chase, you you just got to get – you're down on everything. You got to stop being so negative. We'll never have a podcast again if you're just going to dog on these issues. (laughs) And I'm like, you're being too much of a friggin' optimist. And then there's years where I'm like, well, Bren, there's a bright and happy future, and we just have to work for it. And like, we're almost there, and we're in an era of great achievement. He's just like, Chase, it, everything's on fire. <laughs> well, speaking of fire, what I wrote about in this document was something like, my hope is that the last conversation will be like a fire in the wilderness and that the smoke rising from it, if you just keep the fire going, eventually somebody passing by in the valley sees some smoke on the hill. And assuming they think it's a nice place to go and that it's not unfriendly territory, they'll come and visit. And the idea is that if enough people 
stay up in the hills, lighting fires and letting the smoke rings go up in the air, that you'll have, in the landscape that we're in, you'll have small communities of people who meet and talk either through the internet or in person in town halls and convention centers that and yeah this shows how manic my ideas are for the podcast that you will have communities whose main goal is to discuss communicate and philosophize their way through the mess that we're in. And I've noticed that you see this if you go back and you watch what I call them ideologues. That's not a negative term. That's just what I call someone who is in the cultural, who's swept up in the cultural zeitgeist, understands what's going on, and is talking about it in front of people. That's what I call an ideologue, someone who's presenting ideas of what they see around them. You'll see people used to go in the 80s and 90s, a little in the 70s. You can go on YouTube and watch all these people, all these philosophers, authors, musicians. They would go and just sit in front of 50 people in some, in the middle of nowhere, some little convention center in a rinky dink city. And they just sit and talk with a microphone. And this, this little community college, you'd be like, oh, we've got Terrence McKenna today. Half of you don't know who he is, but here's the books he wrote. And there he goes talking. And the same thing would happen with all kinds of cultural leaders in that time. And I think that's something that's gone. There, but, but it's coming back. It needs to be said. That's, I mean, Dr. Tyson did that in the world of science. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peterson, I would say, Peterson and uh, the Weinstein brothers and, mm-hmm. and their families um, who brought that back. And, and maybe what we're seeing over the last three to five years is an, is an up because there's certainly been a massive public response to it. And so the the medium now is most likely the podcast, which is what we were hoping when we set out. I think we both hoped it would turn into a like a revolving grand central station of big ideas. That's about. That's about all I can muster to say. I think I like how you tied that together. That that did make me feel a little better. <laughs> also, you can edit this out in post-production if you want to, but we're hoping, guys, to get Mr. Broom back on soon. So if any of you enjoyed that conversation, we hope you did, and I think probably I – don't, I don't think – they could take us and we could do a podcast live at the UN during a general session of the UN. I still don't think we would ever find anyone that you and I could talk to and ask questions of that would that would lead more places than Broom. <laughs> so if there were any of you who listened to that episode and enjoyed it, we are hoping to get Mr. Broom back on soon. It may be not in person. It may be over the telephone, but it makes no difference. We look forward to bringing that to you guys. <sighs> Any profound statement? Keep thinking. (laughs) I like that. And that is the end of part two. Thanks for being with us, and we look forward to the next time. Have a good one, guys.